With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Jonathan Baker. I took a left at the valley. I know we shouldn't have to scream that we're atheists. You know, we don't have non-astrologers and all that. But with the religious people taking over the world, I mean, we can either speak up or be pushed into a corner. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated claims. That's something to be ashamed. I'm an Ah, coming at you from some secret cave, this is Left of the Valley. My name is Kevin, and last night, I fell asleep in a satellite dish, so all my dreams were broadcasting in high def. <laughs> Joining me as usual is a team that researches why Barbie is so popular, you have to buy her, why do you have to buy your friends? <laughs> oh, oh, I see what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> she photocopied her watch, so now she has time to spare Nancy. Oh, Barbie, Barbie needs friends because, you know, she's a doll. <laughs> she needs people to say, oh, you're such a doll. Why else? And he wondered why Dracula has his hair neatly combed if he has no reflection. Scott. <laughs> oh, and she bought, she bought some instant water, but she didn't know what to add to it. Christina. Hello. Hi. <laughs> she's replacing crickets today. <laughs> <laughs> guys, crickets. guys, welcome back. Hope you had a good week. No. No? <laughs> well, there starts at a low note. Everything's got to be go. better than that. <laughs> we're gonna have a great, improve. We're going to have a great show today because later on we're going to be playing the interview Scott and I did with the best hair in atheism, Jerry DeWitt. Very cool. <laughs> but for Very now, cool. let's do a bit of chit-chat. I guess we got to talk about the story that's been making the news, the uh, Grenfell Tower in London. You guys hear about this? Oh, horrible. horrible. And the the films were just devastating. That's the 24-story tower in London. Uh, Now, apparently, there are rumors that a fridge sparked a fire. And uh, now, as we speak, 30 dead confirmed. 74 being treated. 18 are in critical condition. Poor London. There's just been so much assault on that. The Manchester, the the Ariana Grande concerts and all that. And wow, there's been a lot lately uh, in in England. Uh, Apparently, there's a rumor that uh, the insulation of the outside of the tower would be of lower quality, but still legal. And apparently... When that the fire caught to that, it just lit up like a match. So we'll have to. Uh, apparently, there are some rumors that the contractors who build the towers could be sued. Of course. Wow. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. Yeah. Well, best wishes to the survivors and to uh, you know yeah. condolences to the to the families. It's an awful thing. Absolutely. To, Absolutely. To go through. Uh, did you guys hear about this chicken video right here in, that happened right here in Chilliwack? This is a video that uh, some uh, some uh, animal activists took footage of people, what they call chi- uh, ki- uh, chicken catchers, right? Where they catch chickens, put them in boxes, and they're shipped to a processing plant. And apparently the, the video, I didn't see the video myself, but apparently it's pretty gruesome of what the people are doing with the chicken. Oh, let's not go into details. I, I only saw still shots, and yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I hate, I hate to say it to the uh, the population at large, which, of course, you know, uh, now it's, it's a bit hor- horrible to see that, but this has been going on like that forever. 
if you have any inkling or find out where your food comes from, just follow the chain and you'll see it's not a happy life to be a chicken. Anyway, <laughs> but we we vote with our money, yeah. right? So. Yeah. Good news, though. The uh, blasphemy law in Canada has been repealed. Yes. You know, are you surprised that it's gone that fast? We were just talking about it. It's taken, what, less than a year? No, I'm not. Since when the the publicity actually started? Well, I think this is. Needing it it repealed? Last week we were talking about how uh, you have the right to challenge to a duel. This is a bill C 51. This is the liberals that came out with this bill, and it was the bill was essentially doing a bit of house cleanup. They uh, and part of it of that bill was to repeal the blasphemy law, which of course, last time it was used was you know in 1980 was it was threatened in 1980 when they brought out Life of Brian. There was <laughs> a couple right. of movie theaters right. that were that were threatened to be taken to court with something like that. Before that, I think it's like in the 1800 where somebody's really actually accused under that law. So that's. Finally, it's gone. Finally, we got rid of it. Yeah, and you didn't need some kind of big act like they did in Ireland with Stephen Fry or this um, oh. Norwegian guy that was also uh, uh, taken to court for burning a Koran. So. We should keep track of how many countries now are repealing. I have no idea, but I know I've read in the paper there were several countries now that are repealing, and I wonder if it's going to be like a domino effect. I can only hope so because there are several yeah. countries that are going the other way. Like Pakistan, for example, apparently just brought somebody to court for uh, blaspheming on Facebook. And now they're, they're talking about execution at this point. Wow. Execution yeah. for blasphemy. I don't, I don't have the story with me, but I'll, I'll get that wow. to you guys later. Um, did you guys hear about, uh, there's a guy, in, uh, a preacher, a street preacher. His name is Dean Saxon. He's in Arizona. He's a street preacher, and he was holding a sign that says, quote, you deserve to be raped. What? Yeah. Now, what happened here is this woman called Tabitha Brubaker, 19, young woman, just responded to the sign by hitting him over the head with a baseball bat. Ah! Oh, oh that's a slight hint that she might have been offended. Hmm. Was she right? Was she right to do that? No. Uh, no. I, I don't think she was. You know, I, I, you know, I'm on the fence on something like that because I don't, I, I don't like well, violence, of I, course. I understand her frustration, but there are laws. You I understand can't go and hit someone it, over the head with a baseball bat. It, exactly. You, he he you wasn't don't... threatening her directly. Yeah, but at the, at the same time, I can't help but think, you know, when when she's a 19 year old woman and, and and he's a preacher, they're both adults. But imagine a 12-year-old girl walking by and seeing this. How does she feel about this? I mean, how, how terrifying for her to see people saying, you deserve to be raped. So I can but understand can get- somebody bashing this guy saying, you know what, yeah. shut up, there are some kids around here. There should actually be a lot. There should be a lot. Yeah, but you think about this woman who is was so disturbed that she resorted to violence, and now she's the perpetrator of a crime. She's the one that's going to have to go to jail. Her children are the ones that are going to mm. have to live with the effect of their mother committing a, a, an act of violence. Well, she's and, only nineteen. So and how do you children. how do you explain that to a to a twelve year old? I mean, I under, we all understand her rage. Yeah, I totally. But get. there there are laws. We are supposed yeah. to be civilized. So, you know, like Scott, I totally in sympathy with the yes. rage. But as much as I, I, I understand, think as if, if I were a legal person. Uh, like if I were a lawyer, I would you, be giving. You're not her, a legal person. I'm not a legal person. No. Scott is illegal. I'm illegal. <laughs> I I would be giving her services for free based on yeah based on on the fact you know you know she's guilty but I mean 
Trying why, to, why, why well, she'll, have, she'll have a court appointed. She'll have a court appointed why, exactly. lawyer. Why should we add insult to injury mm-hmm. on this? Um, the, I mean, she was insulted enough right there. But she came prepared with a baseball bat, which means she. It, well, maybe it was, she was coming it, from baseball it was practice. Premeditated. Well, maybe, or she just maybe grabbed something that was close by and happy to be a baseball bat too, oh, right? Uh, possibly. I, I guess the, the question arises. We're not going to get into this today, obviously, but the question arises. You know, free speech is great, but is there such a thing as too much free speech? No. Yeah, I agree. No, you I can don't. never. You can never. Well, when you get into hate I, speech, yeah. the, the first thing I would love to do is make a law that says you're not allowed to say something that is promoting something illegal. Okay, I would love to do that, but then you're stepping on the freedom of speech, and it's a very slippery slope. Well, yeah, but you got to watch out here because you, you, we're listening to, a, uh, we're talking about a, a U.S. story, but U.S. freedom of speech and Canadian freedom of speech are very different, different things. Yeah, they're very. There different. are some restrictions on Canadian f- uh, free speech. Oh, well, you're not allowed are. to. You're not allowed to promote hate. That's right. Right. You're not allowed to. Then, and I, I agree with that, but how would you write the law saying that he's not allowed to say what he said? He's not allowed to display that because let's say that was in Canada. As soon as you write a law saying you're not allowed to display that, now you're on a very slippery slope into I totally censorship. Agree. Well, I some totally of the, some speech, it, it draws the line when you can't incite to a riot mm-hmm. or you can't exactly. say that you're going to commit um, a, a crime against somebody. I'm going to so, kill you so, or and whatever. Maybe, and maybe him by him saying that, you know, you deserve to be raped. You deserve to have the law broken on you. Well, maybe that should be illegal. Uh, it's a good question. Right. There's, we, there's a, we'll, we'll have to do a show on free drop. speech. Well, the, the we'll other the, the thing that that stems from this or is relative to this is what's going on on college campuses, mm-hmm. and there that's a show in itself. Yeah, okay. You know, well, we're not going over that kind of. No, we're not, <laughs> we're not. Going, but it is. It's a fascinating, fascinating subject. If Very. anyone out there would like to weigh in on free speech, yeah, let us know. Uh, let us know. Uh, did you guys hear about the Virginia baseball shooting? Yes. yes. Oh, this, this can't is avoid it. the congressional baseball game. Yeah, the uh, the Americans yeah. have a, a baseball game, a fun game between Republicans and Democrats. Um, apparently, a, a Steve Scalise, which is the GOP whip, mm-hmm. he's, he's one of the guys in charge of the uh, of the party, was actually shot and wounded. Uh, wow. The shooter's name was James T. Hodgkinson, 66 years old. He was killed by police after that. Uh, he was a Democrat activist. He's, he even volunteered for the Bernie Sanders campaign. Say what? So, uh, of course, as soon as that happened, Bernie Sanders distanced himself rightfully from that and basically condemned the attack. Uh, now, the GOP politicians are running kind of scared. They're saying, you know, we're afraid to go home now because we're seeing some violence from the left. And, you know, I hate to be an ass here. But you know what? It's about fucking time because re- they, they've been peddling this kind of hate for over for decades now. You reap what you sow. Exactly. Now it's coming back to bite them. Yeah. Now, like, I don't agree with the violence. Don't get me wrong. No. I don't agree with the violence. But you know what? Well, welcome to the mess you created. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Now, yeah. now they perhaps they're going to understand what their constituents have been living with in terms of gun violence all of these yes, years and now yes. their ox has been been gored it, it, it's a touchy subject you know to it have to bring subject. up but it, it, there's a great deal of truth we'll have to see what yeah. happens as a result and it's kind of funny because there was supposed to be a uh, they were supposed to repeal a couple of laws in congress that very week to uh, even make the the gun laws even looser and now they've 
push that off. They push that vote off because now they're realizing it's coming back to bite them big time. What was interesting to me as sort of a sidelight is that, of course, they they sent Trump out there to give a healing speech and so forth. And yeah, so he gave he gave his little speech about unity and so forth. And then the next day he's on Twitter <laughs> You know, with with speech that's so divisive in terms of <laughs> the Democrats and the witch hunt, it's like he can read from a prepared speech, but it, it doesn't enter his brain that when he he tweets at three o'clock in the morning with something that is hateful, that that may be spurring on the the very divisiveness that he that they're, they're sending him out there to cure. It was so ironic. Yeah. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. I, I don't know if uh, they're, they're going on about the gun laws. I don't think the gun laws are the issue. Oh, uh, crazy, crazy people are going to do crazy things. Oh, okay, and and it doesn't enough. matter whether you have gun laws or not. I but, mean, but the difference is the crazy person in this situation, if they didn't have a gun, they wouldn't have been but, as effective. That's right. But, yeah, exactly. But if they don't have a gun legally... Guess what the worst gun crime is in Canada? Okay, l- right? it's illegal weapons. We, so. we, we didn't we didn't talk about this story, but a couple yeah. of weeks ago, remember that uh, in England again, that guy that rammed his car into the public, and then they came out and started slashing mm-hmm. people with knives. Sure, there was what three, four attackers. There was yeah. three. No, oh, three attackers. Okay, so now they, they've injured a number a number of people. Put guns in these guys' hands instead of knives. Everyone's yeah, dead. You've got you, triple the amount of victims. How do you... Hmm, and there, there's where it is. How do you control that in a, in a country of 350 million people? Mm, who traditionally have had... I mean, there's more guns floating around in the United States. So you can make them illegal right now, and you're going to just drive the gun violence underground. You're, you're not going to fix anything. Well, first of all, you don't have the National Rifle Association buying and selling politicians like they well, were yeah, yeah, candy exactly. across the counter. And then you don't have legislators approving a law that that allows people with severe mental illnesses to to uh, to purchase guns. Yeah. 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 See, those, that, two, those two things alone, you know. Might and, and, that, and again, that's not a gun control issue. That's a people control issue. It's it's fine to have the gun out there, but keep it out of the hands. We of need the another gun to beat. Yeah. All right, uh, last little story. Free speech and guns. We got, <laughs> we got, we've got the next year covered. We don't have to find another yep. topic. Uh, fun little story to finish this uh, this segment. Uh, did you guys hear about the NASA Solar Probe Plus mission? No. Whoa. This is cool. This is gonna they're gonna launch a probe in the summer of 2018 to explore the sun. Oh, Ooh. this is the one that's going to dive right down to the sun, isn't Very it? close. Actually, yeah. it's going to fly at about 6.4 million. 6. million kilometers above oh, the sun. 6.4. Yeah, 6.4. That should cook it well. <laughs> the, temp- <laughs> the temperature there reaches around 1,400 degrees Celsius. So uh, this uh, mission is to better predict solar winds and flares and figure out why the corona is so much hotter than the rest of the sun, apparently. Uh, the last time they had a mission close to that was Helios in 1974. This one went about 45 million kilometers, so there's a huge distance between the two. And Helios 2, uh, around the same year as that, came in at 43.4 kilometers close to the sun. Well, the, big, the big problem with that is the heat is one thing. You can shield for the heat. You can build things to take the heat, but the radiation. Yeah. The radiation is so much more intense yeah. when you're that close. And They're not sending people. Our, no, no, but our <laughs> electronics yeah. can't survive that kind of radiation. 
they it tends to cook the electronics. Well, you know, if you put some uh, SPF 30, you know, <laughs> <some block. laughs> SPF 6000. <laughs> All right, Nancy, we're doing a quack watch. We are on deep. Quack watch. You're okay. This 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 started out very casually and then then built to a, a quack watch topic but it was kind of interesting so I'll give you a little little background information I was at City Hall and next to me was the newspaper from the uh, our university University of Fraser Valley and they have a, a fairly nice newspaper called the Cascade mm. and it was the only thing to read and I was waiting for a friend so I picked it up and lo and behold the editor-in-chief who happens to be um, a gentleman by the name of Joel Robertson Taylor very very well written very articulate article about a personal experience that he had had um, and that that led to the quack watch the experience he had was that during finals he just ran out of adrenaline he was tired he's the editor-in-chief and he's also a student so he figured it was probably time to go to the doctor and maybe find out you know what's keeping him up at night something to relieve you know the tiredness that he had so he went to the doctor had some blood tests and when everything came back the um doctor asked this wasn't the clinic doctor at the hospital this was a a general practitioner here in in Abbotsford I I assume and the doctor said is there depression in your family and he said yes but I'm not depressed I'm here for a totally other issue you know I'm just tired I need some energy what can I do and the doctor kept on talking about the depression and perhaps what he needed was a mild antidepressant because they were very useful to a lot of people and she would like to prescribe and so they spent 10 minutes at least talking about the fact that she thought it would be a good idea and he didn't Mm. so finally he realized I'm not getting out of this doctor's office without getting the prescription so he took the prescription and and left and he really didn't have any um, uh, uh, any ideas of, of filling it it was just he took the prescription and left and then he got to thinking how many times has this happened to other people? What are the statistics about antidepressants? And from the article, this is something that was just totally new to him. So he began to do a little research uh, when he got back, and he found out in Canada that Canadians consume 86 doses of antidepressants per 1,000 people per day. And wow. that Canada is the third highest consumer of among 23 um, uh, countries that were that were surveyed for the use of antidepressants. That's kind of depressing wow. in itself to hear That's that. That's scary. It, not only was it scary, but as I read through this article, and he, he began to talk about um, uh, how antidepressants in Japan had made a, a big difference and uh, how the J- Japanese had reacted to increased use of antidepressants when they hadn't before, And when he included the date of when the Japanese began to use antidepressants, which is in the late 90s, a light bulb went off in my head, and I remembered that in the late 90s, there was an ad campaign for a drug for a disease that actually 
never existed before the ad campaign. So now we get into not the quack watch because the medication is okay. It's big pharma and how they mm-hmm. they handled it. Back in... 19, between 1997 and 1999, some newspaper and magazine television news stories began popping up about a, a little-known malady that was called social anxiety. Social anxiety was a made-up condition by an English pharmaceutical company called Glaxo. Glaxo eventually... Um, uh, was bought out by Smith Klein in the in the United States, and the drug they were talking about was Paxil. Back in the '90s, when people were depressed, there were three major drugs that were used for for depression. They're fine drugs if they're prescribed um, and used appropriately by referring physicians that know what they're doing. Um, Prozac, um, Zoloft, and Paxil were the three leading drugs. Paxil, like a horse race, Paxil was third. The other two were ahead. Why they were ahead? Paxil is coming around the corner, running up the wall. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And why they were ahead is a function of marketing, because pharmaceutical reps recommend different drugs, and and different drugs uh, are then. Uh, subject for perks for the doctors and so forth. So it's not that one drug was really better than the other. It was how they were presented to the docs and then the number of prescriptions that were actually redeemed at the pharmacies and so forth. So Paxil... With some of the doctors that were prescribing Paxil realized that it was not only good for depression, but it was also good for mild forms of anxiety. And Glaxo at that time decided that there was a whole market out there that had never been explored before for Paxil. And they made up a condition called social anxiety. Not only did they make this up, but just coincidentally, at the same time that they decided there was this huge untapped market for Paxil out there, but the FDA eased the restrictions for drugs to be advertised both in magazine, print magazines and television. So the two came together in this huge marketing campaign where Paxil began to um, do, they did two things. They, they had their representatives um, now present Paxil to the doctors and to the American Psychiatric Society and so forth as a drug that would relieve social anxiety, and they had to explain social anxiety because it hadn't existed. They had the pill, and then they had to make up social anxiety in order to sell the pill. So they hired a um, a, um, a PR uh, company to work on the association side, the, the professional side, to educate doctors into prescribing Paxil to their patients and to explain what social anxiety was and so forth. And a lot of the organizations, American Psychiatric Association and so forth, bought it even though in the journals the the research was a little bit sketchy, but they began to realize they now had a drug that they could they could prescribe. The other thing that they did, because the FDA now said that they could do more advertising, is they began to market the drug to the consumer. 
This made a huge change because now the consumer who is feeling socially awkward now said, oh, I have a condition. I'm not just a nerdy somebody who, you know, you can kick sand in my face and laugh. I have a real condition, and I can go to the doctor and get a pill for it. So it legitimized in a lot of consumers' minds the fact that they had a condition rather than the fact that they were socially awkward. So they initially began to to market this to men rather than women because men's careers were being affected if they were not confident and public speakers and can put themselves out. So that's that's how this started in 1997. So it, it was no accident at all that everything happened at this particular time because of the FDA and Paxil being third in the market and realizing there's 10 million people out there who say they suffer from social anxiety and they knew they could they could market to them directly to the consumer where they would go to the doctor and say, this is me. Now there's something you can do about it. And the doctors who are pill conscious anyway, just the way the doctor was in Canada that Joel saw, did exactly the same. Here's a little mild something, and it's going to help you. So sell the money. Sell the money. So the pharmaceutical <laughs> the companies marketed psychopharmacological treatments, and now they're in the business of selling psychiatric illnesses, it, which was totally, totally new. They would have a field day with me. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, one of the, the bioethicists at University of Minnesota who studies the philosophy of psychiatry said, the way to sell drugs is to sell psychiatric illness. If you're Paxil and you're the only manufacturer, because they got approval from the FDA to market this for social anxiety, they were the only drug to do that. Pro Prozac and Zoloff did not. So they were the only drug. So if people had social anxiety, they couldn't ask for any other drug. This was this was the drug to go. So if you're the only manufacturer who has the drug for social anxiety, it's in your interest to broaden the category as far as possible and make the borders as fuzzy as possible. And that's that's exactly what happened. So this is a disturbing story. It was very <laughs> disturbing. The ad campaign, the ad and the education campaign paid off in this antidepressant market and GlaxoSmithKline's 2000 2000 annual report told shareholders that the drug became number one in the U.S. uh, market for for new retail uh, prescriptions. So uh, there was also um, the, the product director, Barry Brand, at the time told Advertising Age every marketer's dream is to find an unidentified or unknown market and develop it. That's what we were able to do with social anxiety disorder. So essentially, they invented a disease. So they can move from third place to first place and they get did. a bigger share of the market. They did. And develop new customers at the they same did. time. They did. It's exactly what they wow. did. What they did was they... Where they, are my pills? Remember, we, there were 10 million Americans that suffered from social anxiety disorder, this made-up social anxiety disorder. And... Um, that was the most common mental disorder after depression and alcoholism. And 13% of Americans were affected by social anxiety uh, disorder. And the target, the target market 
for this was professionals aged 18 to 24 who, despite appearing normal, experienced, as the market campaign said, experienced overwhelming fear in social or work-related situations. So the critics said that the drug maker was artificially creating a market, which they were, by Paxil, by encouraging merely shy, the shy to diagnose themselves with a more debilitating form of social phobia. So as I said, they, they marketed to men, but they estimated that twice as many women suffered from social anxiety. So then they began to place the ads in, in women's magazines and then to television shows that were, that were watched mainly by women. Soon they're going to have a pill for people to breathe. Yeah. So the outcome was that as a result of the campaign to advertise social anxiety disorders, media references to the condition climbed to more than 1 billion articles, up from 50 in 1997. And 96% of these articles conveyed the information that Paxil was the only FDA-approved treatment which was then available. After the campaign had run for seven months, according to medical marketing, Paxil scored third among all advertised prescription drugs, not in their class, but in all um, anxiety, and they had the number one share in in the antidepressants from 1998 to 1999. So preceding the campaign, they had 9.3% of 6.7 million prescriptions. But from June to October 1999, as the campaign ran, Paxil's market share grew to 11.5%, but was responsible, and this was this is what's so amazing, was responsible for half the increase in the entire market, which grew to 7.2 million prescriptions. Holy crap. So, um, <clears throat> um, so the outcome was that they now had this cash cow that was bringing in a ton of money on something that they <laughs> that they had yeah. bringing the moolah. yeah and it became the number one in the, in the US for for the, this kind of drug so in 2001 they won the FDA approval to market Paxil since it was so good for what they were do- doing with social anxiety in 2001 they marketed it for general anxiety disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. Now, you got to realize the reason that happened in 2001 was because that was 9-11. Yeah. Of course. And then they realized that they could take advantage of the, oh, of the trauma that, that was there as well. So they, they, made a, they made a ton of money, and they were going great guns, and then they got to come up and because in 2012 they were brought to court, and it was the largest uh, settlement involving a pharmaceutical company in the U.S. The U.S. Justice Department announced in, in July 2nd in 2012 that Glasgow Smith Klein had to pay three billion dollars in fines and they pled guilty to marketing drugs for unapproved uses and failing to report drug safety information to the U.S. Uh, FDA. 
See, the problem is that sounds like a lot of money, but you know, what's $3 billion in fine when you're making $100 trillion? <laughs> you took the words right out of my article. That's exactly it's right. It's no punishment, right? It's, it, 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 it's the price of business as far it, as they're concerned. Exactly. And although, um, it, here's here's what the actual cause was. Uh, although Paxil wasn't approved for patients under 18, they illegally marketed the drug for children and for teens and offered kickbacks to doctors and sales representatives to, to push it. Then in 2017, GlaxoSmithKline came up short in efforts to convince a jury that they shouldn't be liable for a Chicago lawyer's 2010 suicide while he was on generic Paxil. So jurors sided with the man's widow and awarded a $3 million verdict against the drug maker because it was a generic form of Paxil, but there was nothing on that label to warn that suicide was, was a possibility, you know, if the drug was was uh, taken in the uh, you know in, in in not not the approved way. So they they did lose you know quite a bit quite a bit of money. But the the campaign um, Paxil is still there. It's still being marketed, and as long as it's being approved, uh, as long as it's being used correctly, it it's it's still it's still a good drug. But it's absolutely you know a function of greed mm-hmm. and marketing that that brought it that way. This is why people don't trust Big Pharma. <laughs> yeah, and um, I'm looking here for a, um, I've got a, a, a good quote that I've, I've just lost, but going back to our friend Joel Robertson and his uh, his uh, prescription that he that he was given. I'm going to read this because I think the the ending of of his article kind of sums up where where most of us most of us feel. He said. Many ancient spiritual practices ritualize uh, focused rest. It's a bit different from doing nothing. However, it involves focusing on being at peace or amongst a community of friends. When you pay attention, you see there are rhythms to everything. We call them seasons, currents, rotations, cycles. Rest is always a part of those cycles. If everything else on this planet is attuned to it, I reasoned I'd better do the same. And it seemed to work. Even in that short practice of even in that short practice of rest reversed my woes from the entire semester i threw out the prescription not because of a moral superiority purely because of pragmatics i just don't need them like i didn't need cigarettes either and though i've quite and though i've quit smoking dozens of times for a long time i regretted my first drag there were better ways to relax i don't know much about psychiatry but i find whatever's bothering me always pales in comparison to grandfather cedars and prehistoric glaciers and Good that's quote. and and that's the whole point is that when people are feeling as though they're overwhelmed mm-hmm. or they can't quite make it, you know, to to find the balance within themselves and to find alternate ways of finding peace and counseling, because counseling is still something that even when you stop counseling, you know, you can you can go back to it, but it's not something that you have to take every 
every day. We do have a tendency to go for the quick fix. Well, of course, I, I do want to put a, a bit of a disclaimer there. Now, if you actually do have a medical condition that requires absolutely, a drug, that's what. Don't just no. wish wash it away because of your 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 thoughts on big pharma. I mean, don't be stupid about this too, right? If it's, but do some research. There's nothing wrong with that. that well, that's that's exactly you know what what I was going to sum up, and you and you said it mm-hmm. beautifully and succinctly because when the drugs are prescribed properly you have people with obsessive compulsive disorder you have people with depression who can't leave the house you have debilitating conditions and that's what these drugs were made to do to help people who actually had chemical problems within the brain that is not allowing them to have normal behaviors and to feel some success mm-hmm. and some confidence in their lives those drugs are fine this was totally a, a function of evil marketing to make money that's always a problem isn't it's it it's not the science itself is the profit motive. And and usually even when drugs are um, prescribed, it's usually in conjunction with counseling. They usually go hand in hand. It's like they say diet and exercise, right? Exactly. Yeah. Perfect. Correct. Thank you, Nancy. That was yeah. interesting. Yes. Well done, Nancy. Yep. Well, for now, let's go to a different... I've got a couple nice little stories that you guys will like. Let's go to... Things that make you go... Things that make you go, hmm. All right. Now, did you guys know that there's a report that came out that says the world's happiest countries are also the least religious countries? According I to... I read that. It's a report by released by the World Happiness Index. Now, the report shows that the world's happiest countries are also the least religious countries. The happiest countries also tend to be fairly homogenous nations with strong social safety nets. The report explains how researchers determine their list ranking the world's happiest countries. According to the report, Denmark has reclaimed this place as the world's happiest country, while Burundi ranks as the least happy nation. Denmark topped the list of the first report in, in shoot in uh, 2012 and again in 2013, but it was displaced by Switzerland last year. In this year's ranking, Denmark was back in number one, followed by Switzerland, Iceland, Norway, Finland, Canada... The Netherlands, New Zealand, Australia, and Sweden. If you're wondering about the U.S., it came in at 13th. Uh-huh. The unhappiest countries in the world are Afghanistan at 154th, followed by Togo and Syria, of course, and Burundi comes last at 157th. You know the Scandinavian countries really lead in in all the good things. stuff, don't they? They lead in all Definitely. of the the good ways that, that people should should enjoy life and be supported by their government. Now, I know we, we don't want to say correlation is causation, obviously, or something like that, but uh, you can't help but think, hmm, there's something to this, right? So, uh, any thoughts about this? Do you guys think that, you know, societal problems are driving to religion, or do you think it's the other way around? I don't know. No, uh, honestly, I don't know. An honest question, an honest answer. It's, I don't know, I guess there's not as much condemnation of behaviors than the, you know, when religion isn't involved, it's not the, the tension that, you know, the, th- this book says you've got to do it this way, and if you don't believe in our book, you know, you're, more you're, you're heading, you know, you're heading to the inferno for sure. I know a lot of people where they, they, they have problems, personal problems, uh, behavioral, maybe alcoholism, maybe whatever. And well, I found Jesus as the answer for them, and I'm I'm always 
questioning that going exactly anybody who says that is trading one addiction for Jesus doing for you that you couldn't do for yourself you're trading your alcoholic addiction for a Jesus addiction that's what you're doing that's what it is well science reason and and science reason and logic go go a long way you know Mm -hmm. toward toward making a good society rather than having people depend on a 2,000 year old yeah. book yeah and and usually when you're religious science reason and logic come after your religion yeah, yeah it so if it doesn't window. fit in with your religious text then you're like well it's just not real yeah exactly <laughs> so speaking of which uh, you know there was a uh, uh, a poll that says that just over half of Canadian respondents say that they believe religion does more harm than good in the world this is according to a new survey the Ipsos poll conducted by for Global News showed that 51% of respondents agree with the above statement. Yes. Well, wow. don't you think that had something 100%. to do with the repeal of the blasphemy law? I, it probably does. You know, it's trickling down, I guess. Um, this guy Simpson explained that the number is rising. When Ipsos asked the same question in 2011, 44% of people agreed. So now non-religious or secularism is on the rise in Canada. Um, that means we're becoming happier. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> what we did find surprising was that Quebec, once considered to be Canada's most religious province, is now the most secular. Wow. Compared to the rest of Canada, Quebecers are significantly more likely than residents of other provinces to feel religion does more harm than good. I told Very you this good. a couple of Very shows good. ago. <laughs> so yeah, I'm not lying. That's just because they, they were all Roman Catholic and they saw what the Roman Catholic Church did. And Exactly. Like I told you, there was a, there's an underground feeling of, you know yeah. what, the church, ah, you know. They're also more inclined, 18%, to lose respect for people when they find out they are religious. Really? Yes. Wow. So, uh, Conversely, uh, fewer people believe that, um, that people who are religious have a higher moral ground. In fact, most disagree with that. Only 24% of respondents said they believe religious people are better citizens, down 8 points from 2011. The poll also found that despite their views on whether or not it's harmful, Canadians are very tolerant of other people's religion. 9 out of 10 respondents, so that's 90%, said they were completely comfortable being around people who have different religious beliefs than me. Only 13% of respondents said they lose respect for someone when they find out they're religious. And like we said earlier, that number jumps to 18% when you look specifically at Quebec. Hmm. Continuing the trend, there's also a declining view that religion should play a role in politics. 20 years ago, 45% of respondents to a similar poll said that religion should play an important role in political life. In this year's poll, the numbers was down 11 points. Only 34% said religion and politics should intersect. This is a good trend. It is a very good trend and (laughs) it's very, very good news. Perfect. Well, thank you for your thoughts on that, guys. So Don't you feel happier? I'm much <laughs> happier. Are we happy, happy now? Happy. Yeah, like, we're getting happy here. <laughs> Forget <laughs> the Paxil. <laughs> we don't need the Paxil. We don't need little... Paxil. Good news like that. What are some of the, don't need the, some of the effects of Paxil, anyway? Yeah. <laughs> Ain't no seepage. No, you just throw, <laughs> throw all the religious beliefs away. You immediately become happy. There we go. There we go. So let's go to commercial break, and after that, we'll have uh, the interview that Scott and I did with uh, Jerry Dewitt. And stay right with us. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm the Supreme Irreverend Dr. Randy Tyson from the Legion of Reason Diversion. Join me and my co-hosts, Christine Shelska, Twyla, and Nate Phelps, as we explore issues at the intersection of atheism, humanism, and skepticism. Topics range from alternative medicine to the interference of religion in public policy. We often have special guests to help us understand the topic du jour, Previous guests include biologist Jerry Coyne 
ex-Muslim author Ali Rizvi, philosopher Peter Bogosian, and the late physicist Victor Stanger. You can watch us on the Legion of Reason YouTube channel or subscribe to the audio version through your favorite podcatcher such as iTunes or Stitcher. And don't forget to like the Legion of Reason Facebook page. Do you know where Saskatchewan is? Probably not. It's in Canada. If you do, you might know a city named Regina. In Regina, there's a studio. And in that studio, there are, at least once a month, a bunch of skeptical atheist geeks and goofballs who get together to do a podcast. We are the Brainstorm Crew, and we're trying to help spread a bit of reason and critical thinking while still having fun. Never taking things too seriously, but still not accepting everything we're told, we go through different topics, exploring them in depth, and often disagreeing. We try to stick to provable facts, and we never trust a myth. That's why we say we're woo-free since 2013. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spreaker under Brainstorm. Or check out our website, brainstormblog.net. I can't promise you'll always agree with us, but I can promise you'll have fun listening to us. Whoever is led to believe that species are mutable will do good service by conscientiously expressing his conviction. For only thus can the load of prejudice by which this subject is overwhelmed be removed. So what you know about natural selection? Go ahead and ask a question and see where the answer gets you. Try being passive aggressive. Okay, our next guest is uh, Mr. Jerry DeWitt. He is a pastor and uh, he is part. He was part of the Clergy Project and he is arguably the best here at atheism. Jerry, welcome to the rally. Thank you so much. It is a pleasure to be with you. Awesome, awesome. Now, Jerry, you're very well known hey, south of the 49th Jerry parallel. Rich. You might not be as well known as here in Canada. atheism. Would you be so kind to give us the reader's digest of, courage, of who Jerry DeWitt is? And a good example for sure, a lot of people, Jerry still works that, hard today. Let me brag a little help. bit. Oh, people um, come out of the closet. I was on the queue. And accept their apostasy. Ooh. And it was uh, probably the biggest day of sales for my book, Hope After Faith. Oh. It really, really, really skyrocketed uh, after that interview came out. Fantastic. And so so I've, got, I've got, you know, and I've got uh, several Thank you so much for joining us today. north of the border. Hope you enjoyed um, the show. Thank you so much for my co-host being here with members, me on this uh, interview. Catherine, um, who was you can always follow us at leftofthevalley.com. You can follow us at Left of the Valley on Facebook, on Twitter, at LAT Podcast. You can send us an email at leftofthevalley.com. If you go to iTunes, give us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. So the Reader's Digest version would keep on bringing some great material for you. Come up. Born into Next week we're going to talk about the fundamentalist crisis. culture. This is really primarily my grandparents. Were uh, so we'll have a, we have a paramedic on the staff to at age uh, talk about the, what's happening I, on the drug front. Uh, July 1st, we'll have of the a Holy great Ghost interview with Eli Bozic, our friend Eli Bozic of God Awful Movies, and he'll be bringing with him Tom and Cecil of Cognitive Business. That should be uh, a fantastic interview to, uh, to, to listen to, it. and uh, we'll um, be talking about their the new podcast called Citation Needed. Mm-hmm. And then in July, we'll also have Dan Barker. I slowly... That should be interesting for Sometimes the uh, FFR, Freedom from Foundation, intentionally reverse engineered from Religion Foundation. We'll be talking about uh, what the, the fights are in the States and, and maybe we should have one of those here in Canada. We'll also have a show um, we'll talk about my own feminism. All Has feminism to gone too far? Now that should be a nice ago, controversial show and join us for that. that I had studied my Thank you so much, guys, for listening. Until next time. And through somewhat of a fluke, I got basically global uh, recognition for that. According to 
transition, originally being a New York Times article, and as the rest is history. Mm-hmm. So you were ex- essentially the first one to really go through the clergy project. So, because it's a almost a secret society, there's uh, a few concepts that are a little bit hard to, to truly appreciate. And one of them is this, is that there's, there's, there's nothing to go through. What there is in the clergy project is a website that houses a forum where people can anonymously, primarily they choose to do so anonymously, communicate with each other over uh, their common experience of being in the ministry but not believing or having came out of it because of it. And so it's an online forum, very secretive, very protective. And that's really all there is with person. And of course, there's a lot of different forms of support from that. There's a grant um, that person can apply for to use towards trying to get different types of employment. There's there's other little benefits that naturally come from the community that is that niche. But there's no curriculum and there's no... um, there's no debating and there's no taking a doubting minister into the clergy project and deconverting or anything like that. Now, Dan Barclay, um, trying to be somewhat humorous, I think it's Dan the early on, the first graduate of the clergy project. Now, what that meant was, I mean, there were about probably 50 other people already in the clergy project before I came into the clergy project, and I was the first one to come in as uh, a minister and then to publicly come out um, as a non-believer and leave There had been many, many people in the clergy projects that had have already left the ministry that had either been done before the clergy project or not the public. There's a lot of different scenarios. I was the first one to be in the ministry when I came into the clergy project and then publicly leave the ministry as an atheist. Um, so they just, Dan just in a board meeting just said, ah, oh, Jerry is the first graduate of the clergy project. And I ran with it. And as soon as, you know, as soon as that hit the interwebs, then that was part of my bio for a long time until <laughs> the board actually asked me to stop using it because people were getting confused about it. You know, that it, it did make people think that there was some type of uh, curriculum that 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 Richard Dawkins had developed to try to <laughs> de- <laughs> you have to be you have to very much already be deconverted before you will even be allowed into the clergy project. Okay, uh, I will withdraw that then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's my twenty-five minute answer to a you know uh, twenty-five second statement. I apologize. That's okay. That's okay. So you, you obviously grew up in a religious family, and uh, you you went into becoming a pastor yourself. And uh, yes. well, folks, if you guys don't know Jerry DeWitt, if you meet the gentleman, he is a Southern gentleman. You have to absolutely I say try. that about I him. Try. Absolutely, you know uh, he does a, he personify a Southern gentleman. Uh, you and I met at Imaginal Religion Four. You probably don't remember because you meet a ton of people. But anyway, I was just struck by that right away, and. Um, okay. 
you still have that pastoral swagger, I would say. You know, <laughs> yes, I, I, I do. I don't, I don't really know um, how to get rid of it, and I, and I don't know if I want to get rid of it. Um, it it's definitely part of, of, of who I am most of the time, or, or, or in certain situations. You know, I, I think, I think it'd be fair to say if you followed me around twenty-four hours a day for a week you would see at least one or two occasions where I was not carrying myself quite so pastorally. <laughs> so, so were you always a pastor before coming out as an atheist? I started off as an evangelist. Well, I, I guess technically I started off somewhat as an associate pastor. The little country church that my grandmother was going to that I eventually became a part of, I was raised in and around it. Um, but at 17, uh, I, I joined it and very quickly became, you know, the associate pastor for that little church, but didn't really have many pastoral duties other than preaching to the almost non-existent Wednesday night crowd, <laughs> um, helping, uh, corral the youth group, you know, filled with teenagers who wanted to be anywhere but there. And, um, and, and to preach every so often on a Sunday morning, which was the big crowd and was a big pleasure. But I, I quickly moved into evangelism. And my wife and I, uh, until our son was born and just a little while after he was born, we, we traveled the southern states evangelizing, holding revival services. Wow. So, so, so it would be for a few more years that I would actually become an associate pastor again and then eventually would pastor two of my own churches. As the senior pastor, wow, pretty impressive. And that's that really is, the time. That's an impressive career right there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so well, it probably looks like it on paper and sounds like it over the radio, but you know, <laughs> 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 I have to still fluff my resume. You know. <laughs> so, so what? What were the first inklings that you had that you might not necessarily believe? Yeah. The, the, the very first thing was the doctrine of um, eternal punishment, of eternal damnation, the doctrine of hell. That was the very first thing. I was, um, I was two things uh, from the very beginning, 16, 17 years of age, beginning to preach. I was both egotistical and at the same time honest about myself. And so when it became my duty to stand up and to preach the, um, you know, the, the, the platform uh, of our denomination at the time, even though we were independent, we were still very much in line with the United Pentecostals. Um, hell was, was a big part of that doctrine, you know, avoiding hell, not going to hell, all the different things, the mirrored of offenses that you could commit on a daily basis that would make you worthy of eternal punishment. And so when it, when it became my responsibility to get up and preach about that subject, I, I took it very seriously. It was not something that I could just regurgitate. You know, I, I had to know when I looked out at this congregation, like I said, for two reasons. One, I was egotistical enough that I never really was afraid of going to hell, even even before I got quote unquote saved or filled with the Holy Ghost, I I just 
kind of always had this feeling that, you know, if, it, if God loved anybody, he loved me. If God wanted to spend time with anybody, he'd want to spend time with me. I mean, we would. <laughs> Come on. And so I, I never really was afraid of hell. Now, I was very much as a child afraid of dying and afraid of abandonment. Um, and, and for years upon years, I could not go to sleep at night without saying the little rhyme, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. It really was more about praying about dying than going to heaven for me. Um, so when I looked out over the congregation, I I had difficulty in my sincerity, the second side of, of that. I had difficulty looking at these people that I knew and knew fairly intimately and thinking that somehow... I was immune from going to hell, but they were not, you know, because I knew myself well enough to know that if they were bad, I was just as bad. If they were sinners, I was just as much a sinner. You know, I was very, very, very aware of my imperfections, um, not trying to take the show in the wrong direction. But, you know, being a 17 year old um, non-married individual, um, there were habits that I engaged in that were not um, (laughs) kosher for the young preacher. (laughs) No, don't worry. The show is not always family-friendly either. (laughs) Which um, you draw inspiration from for said hobbies. Um, And so, so, you know, I went to the pulpit, repented of that every single time. And, 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 and that just made me, I guess in some ways, as egotistical as I was, it actually made, made me also humble. And, and I thought, you know, if I'm going to preach this thing called hell, I, I've really got to dig into this and find out the truth of it. I mean, it's, it's pretty important. And so I began to study, and I did the very thing that you're not supposed to do. I began to study the writings, uh, the teachings, the doctrines of people who did not belong to our denomination, and get different points of view on it. And not too long after my investigation started, I began to see that there was at least a possibility that God had not handwritten the Bible personally. That maybe there was some, you know, human influence. There might even be some politics. There might even be some, uh, you know, uh, manipulation within the Bible or certain political or, or religious purposes. And so once the inerrancy of the Bible came into question, there really wasn't any going back to where I had been. And so from there on, it was really a struggle of trying to find out what the truth really was and how I could find my place as a minister. Because being a minister for me was almost as important as being saved or anything else, you know. And so I kept trying to find a doctrine that that looked like it was 100% right, that felt right as well, that would allow me to continue to minister without totally destroying the world that I lived in, all while at the same time trying to ignore the whole thing as well, you know. And, And as I've always said, days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months, months turn into years before you know it. So I guess you, I guess it must be difficult when you're a preacher because, like the old adage says, uh, those who live in a glass house shouldn't throw rocks. 
it's kind of yes. it must be hard to be preaching uh, damnation and repent now when you yourself saw yourself as flawed. Yeah, never could. I never could do it. I was I was by far probably Pentecostalism's worst evangelist. Um, because your job is to stand up and call everyone to repentance and, and try to, for lack of better words, intimidate them um, into repenting and coming to the altar and confessing their sins and getting saved or baptized in the Holy Ghost or whatever particular doctrine um, you know they were in. Um, I, I would get these revival services scheduled. I would show up. And I would end up preaching pastoral messages night after night after night, you know, more of um, a, a little bit Joel Osteen like, you know, um, you know, you can make it. God's on your side. You know, everything's going to be OK. You know, everything but the prosperity gospel. I also never was able I was never able to get into the damnation side of things because I would have felt hypocritical for doing it. And I never was able to get into the prosperity gospel of trying to just talk people into giving up their money. Yeah, somebody who can do the prosperity gospel is probably the ultimate mark of knowing this. This guy is a good salesperson. If you can sell that stuff, it's like, oh, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, and, and you know, it's, um, it's a really unique uh, showroom, for lack of better words. Um, you know, uh, there's, a, there's even science, obviously, that goes into designing a showroom for a car dealership. And there's not necessarily science that's gone into designing the church service um, and the different mechanisms that are at play within the service or even the institution itself. But as Daniel Dennett, you know, brings out, um, it, it's evolution. Literally, social evolution has, has really brought about the, the most effective techniques <laughs> that, you, that you could find. Um, and, and it actually, if you're, you know, if you can't sell in church, you probably can't sell anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Actually, we, uh, we did an interview, uh, just very recently with Dr. Del Ray, where we talk about hypnotism in church. Uh, so yeah. I'm assuming you find yourself, uh, looking back today and saying, yeah, I was doing those techniques, whether you knew of them or not. You were you were yeah, selling I, a message. I, this is a place. This is a little bit of a place. I think I think Dr. Del Rey and he and I we 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 worked together a great deal. Um, it actually um, brought me on as the first volunteer uh, executive director for Recovering from Religion. Many you know all these years ago now, um, and and I recommend his book um, God Virus very regularly. And I also call myself a secular sexual. Because of the, you know the <laughs> philosophy that he's created around that, um, but but I I have a slight nuanced opinion on the hypnotism. Um, I don't think that he's wrong. I just think that there's so much more to it than that. I don't think the hypnotism is as powerful as sometimes it sounds like. And I'm getting this sometimes third-handed, so you know, I hope he forgives me if he hears this and thinks I'm I'm, I'm disagreeing with you know a false premise. But I don't think the hypnotism is as powerful as people make it out to be, uh, particularly in normal settings. I think there are so many other personal needs that a person brings to that service 
that it, it, it doesn't require the level of hypnotism that I think sometimes ministers are accused of being able to perform, much less intentionally be able to perform. Uh, even even when you look into a church service, uh, which would seem as obviously hypnotic as, say, a Benny Hinn, where he's able to just blow with his mouth in the direction of one you know quarter of a stadium, and uh, you know several hundred people fall down you know under his quote unquote spell. There's there's even more to it than that. And, uh, and the only reason that that matters to me is, number one, I really don't want ministers getting credit for something they don't have, uh, which is some magical level of hypnotism. Um, but also, I don't want it to ever, I don't want the situation to ever be watered down to something as simple as a Las Vegas trick that mm. you would see in a nightclub. You know, I, I, I always, I'm always promoting how complicated this situation is. And I'm going to tell you, it proves how sorry of a salesman I am because the last thing that sells is, compli- you know, is complication. <laughs> no, I think you're very right. I think you have a very good point there. And like they say, you cannot hypnotize, for lack of a better word, you cannot hypnotize somebody who doesn't want to be. So right. if you're suggestible, half the time it's because you want to be too. Yeah, I, I've, I have allowed myself to uh, fall backwards uh, while being prayed for because that's what everyone else was doing and that's what the minister expected. And, um, you know, and I knew very well that there was no power, you know, overcoming me. Now, there have been times that I did feel like there was a power. That's a different story altogether. And, but it makes me it makes me at least wonder how many other people uh, are just as conscious of willingly submitting to the act, mm. you know. And then suddenly, like you said earlier, you find yourself uh, seeing the light or joining the dark side, whichever way you want to say it. I prefer the dark side because we have cookies. And then you end up in the New York Times. Yeah. Um, and so what I, what I prefer to say is that I graduated from my faith. You know, I don't like to say I lost my faith because that sounds like you lost your keys, you know, or you, you know, it either means, you know, when you say you lost your faith, and, and I'm not in any way criticizing anyone who says that because I think um, um, my dear, dear, dear friend Dan Barker has really, really um, gotten the world's attention with that phrase, you know, lost my faith or lost faith. Um, so I'm not criticizing it. I just prefer not to say it because sometimes it sounds like you lost something simply inconvenient, like your keys that can be replaced, or like you lost a loved one, someone mm. who died, and you'll never get over it. You know, it's it's a loss that there's no recompense or recovery from. Um, I prefer to say I graduated from my religion. And what I mean by that is I look back over my life, and I see my religious experience as a test of my integrity, a test of my ability to reason, a test of my love for humanity, because that plays a very big role in my deconversion as well. Um, a test of my personal integrity. Did I already say that one? Yeah, integrity. Uh, I think it was a test of my internal fortitude. I, I see my religious experience as a test, and I think coming out on the other side and being able to, to realize that I was an atheist and no longer try to play word games in order to uh, postpone that revelation and then to be public about it and uh, understanding what the loss is going to be, I feel like I graduated, like I passed the test. 
is the way I feel about it. I absolutely agree with you. I think that's a wow. better way of putting it. Uh, losing your faith does always make it sound like you've lost something precious, which in reality it's not. So you're out there now, and all of a sudden people know that Pastor Jerry DeWitt is a non-believer. There must have been some backlash of some kind. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people go through social suicide, and you're, you're a pastor all your life at that point. It must have been terrifying. You, what, what am I going to do? You know, That's the first thing that goes through your head, I would think. It was. It was. Um, I was afraid of it for for some time. You know, the the closer that I would get to admitting to myself where I was heading, the more afraid, obviously, I would be of of the repercussions. You know, if if I first off, I, I knew that if I ever truly accepted where I thought I was going, my integrity would force me to make a move because I had made dozens of costly moves throughout my religious career. I, I you know, if I if my doctrine changed enough. That I no longer felt at home or felt like I didn't believe 98% of what the people around me believed. I had enough respect for them and for myself to basically disregard everything that I had built up and start over, you know, and, and bless my poor family's heart. You know, we, we've started over many, many times. And, uh, and I don't know if you, you know, can imagine this or not, but that's not very financially wise, <laughs> starting over over and over and over again yeah. it doesn't help make account it doesn't help your credibility it, it, it doesn't help a lot of things other than your sense of personal integrity um, so so I knew I knew that if I allowed myself or when I finally did accept this reality I would make a move and then I knew that that move would ultimately ripple out into the public and that it, it might would be costly I I honestly Though I was afraid of it, in another way, once again, I was egotistical, and I thought, you know, I love so many, I've taken care of so many people, I've helped so many people. If anybody can get away with this, I can. Everybody will still love me, you know, or at least most people will still love me, and, and you know, if anybody can get away with this, I can. So on one hand, I was horrified. On another side, I was hopeful because of my, you know, ego. And, um, and man, my ego side turned out to be incredibly wrong. <laughs> and my um, my my fearful side um, greatly underestimated what was going to happen. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, we we lost virtually every friend that we had. Mm. I would say out of a, several dozen friends and hundreds of acquaintances, um, we were probably left with maybe two or three friends at the most. We lost all of the relationships with our family, especially in the very beginning, except for about three or four relationships uh, out of out of a large extended family. Um, we received death threats. Oh, we, wow. um, you know, you name it, you, you, you name it. We were pariahs. Did somebody ever try to approach you with a pair of clippers and say, "Convert <laughs> back to God, or your hair gets it"? <laughs> no, no, they, uh, I think I might have been, I might have taken some solace in if they actually would have gotten that close to me, you know, wow. but instead, I, you know, I've been a pastor, a minister of some kind for 25 years. I have been in public service. I've been the mayor's chief of staff. I've been the code enforcement officer. I've been, I've, I've worked at city hall and on for almost 10 full years. Um, so I had a, you know, a very public secular career at the same time that I was doing all these other things. 
And so I was accustomed to not being able to go to Walmart. My wife would literally not let me go to Walmart with her because what would be a 15-minute in-and-out trip for her would be no less than a 45-minute trip if I went because we would constantly be stopped by people who wanted to wish us well, shake our hands, say hello, ask for a favor, ask for help, get advice, you name it. You know, It wouldn't be an exaggeration to say probably every fifth or sixth aisle there would be somebody there who would know us and would reach out to us. And so word spread so quickly that it was shocking to watch time after time on a single trip to Walmart to watch people turn around and go the other way whenever they spotted us. Wow, that's amazing. And, you know, shame on them. And I know, I, I, Jerry, I promise to not reveal the secret of yours, but for people that don't know, Jerry's like Samson of atheism. The better his <laughs> hair is, the stronger and the more powerful he is. So if that's, you really want to beat him, you got to shave his hair. <laughs> That's a fact. They should have got closer to me. They should have got closer to me and, and shaved my head. Absolutely. You you hear yeah, um, you hear a lot of stories like that of people, you know, essentially almost committing social suicide, and that's that's the the heavy price to pay for people yeah. uh, going into apostasy. But knowing you, you're you're a very positive kind of fellow. Um, what did you gain? Yeah. So um, all kind of things I gained. Now um, I put on a good front. If you ask my wife, she would probably tell you that I'm one of the most negative people that she knows. Oh, really? Um, and so I put on a really, really good front, but I, I battled, um, I've never been clinically diagnosed with any form of depression, but just knowing of other people's symptoms, I'm sure that I've battled different, you know, phases uh, of depression. I can tell you that I definitely battled an all-consuming um, season of anxiety disorder, panic attack disorder, became agoraphobic in different ways. My nervous wow. system has, has, has definitely been put through the ringer at different times. Uh, so I don't want anybody, and the reason, I'm, the reason I'm telling you this is, as I was leaving the ministry, the last few years of my ministry, one of the most rewarding things that I stumbled upon and then would consciously do for the rest of the remainder of my Christian ministry is I would be very, very open about my shortcomings whenever I was speaking. And and I could tell that it made a an enormous difference to the lay members setting out of the congregation because they just assume that the reason that you're elevated up on that platform uh, is because you're better than them. And 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 that can become so cemented in their minds that they won't even reach out and let you know what's really going on with them at times, you know, because they're embarrassed because they just assume you don't know what it's like. And so once I started getting up and telling people, Hey, I've, I've had these problems, you know, I, I, this is what I'm struggling with, those kind of things. I even talk openly about my doubts uh, towards the end of my ministry. Um, it, it was, it was rewarding to me because of how, uh, ministering it was to the people in the congregation. So I just want people listening to y'all show to know that I have battled with depression. I have battled with anxiety. Probably I would, I would put my anxiety war stories up against anyone's. Um, I've battled with these things. I've battled with fear. I've battled with agoraphobia. I've battled with these things. Now, fortunately, allowing reason to become um, more of the staple 
of my thought life as much as possible, reason worked me out of some of these things. It's the reason why that I've been working on, not trying to overuse the word reason, but it is the reason why that I've been slowly working on a new book called Reasonably Happy. And, um, and I hope to put that out in the next year or so. But And it's the reason why that I'm now involved in life coaching. Uh, I hate that terminology, but that's, that's what people recognize it as. Not being a clinical psychologist, not being a physician, but having ministered now 25 years in Christianity, but, but six years now in the secular movement, um, I think I've got a lot of experience to share. And I don't want anyone ever getting the idea that, you know, that this perfect hair somehow makes you immune to the ups and downs of life. <laughs> now I'm getting worried. <laughs> it or not, I haven't forgotten the question. No, no. Uh, <laughs> so the answer is, is it's actually the benefits, of course, first and foremost, was a, a fantastic community. Perfect? Absolutely not. A pain in the butt many times? No doubt about it. But a wonderful and accepting, sometimes confusing <laughs> family. Um, you know, if you can avoid if you can avoid the leadership of the movement, you're probably going to have an incredibly exciting and wonderful time with everybody else. Um, sorry, that was my little bit of jadedness. See? <laughs> um, but of course, having having that 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 family. Um, was extremely, extremely rewarding. Um, on top of that, though, stripping away that layer of facade and receiving the tsunami of rejection that came from doing that, it kind of, um, can you say the H word on, on your show? Sure. I'm not sure. So it kind of gives you a what the hell mentality. You know, like, like what do I have to lose? You know, everybody would, you know, people would vote for a child molester in office before they would vote for me as an atheist. What do I have to lose? You know, I mean, what what does it matter if, uh, you know, if they find out something else about, me? you know, like I don't like mustard and mayonnaise or something, you know, whatever it is, uh, a great liberty has come with this. And still, I'm only six years in. And so I'm still moving into that liberty i'm still i'm still enjoying it more and more and finding other areas where i can say hey yeah guess what everybody able i don't agree with y'all politically this is how i feel about it or hey guess what everybody this is what i think about this very personal issue or that issue um and then i can go live and enjoy that you know as well and of course being able to still have some form of ministry uh in the secular movement has been very encouraging and as i started off the show confessing my great battle with the ego for 35 seconds becoming world famous was one heck of a rush. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. DeWitt, your story is one of courage, and I certainly appreciate it. Before I let you go, can I a uh, quick favor? Can I? Uh, what would you rec- what would you tell to these closeted atheists out there? What, what is words of wisdom, words of hope from Jerry DeWitt? Would be so, what? So this is this is what I would tell you, and this is the same message I give uh, ministers that I deal with on a regular basis. We we have a Patreon account. People who people who donate to our Patreon account, what they're really doing is buying my time. Um, I'm an independent consultant. That's how I make a living, and so I don't get paid by the hour. 
So every hour, no matter what hour that is during a 24-hour day that I take away from that work, I'm taking uh, food and, and, and food money away from my family. So even when I stop to write an email or do a show like this or, or whatever, um, it's the patrons who, who are paying for me to be able to do these kind oh, of things. I feel super guilty one of the most now. important things that they pay for is on a non-ending basis, I'm in communications with doubting ministers or ministers who already don't believe and are trying to figure out what they're doing. And the same principles that I teach them applies to um, the lay member closeted atheist. And the number one thing is, is to remember time is on your side. Um, don't allow yourself to be religiously motivated to save the world from religion the same way that you were religiously motivated to save the world with religion. Don't get caught up in that same fervor. Mm. Time's on your side. Take the time to be strategic. Strategize an exit strategy, how you can come out, how you can leave the ministry or, or whatever it is that you need to do, however it is you think you need to come out. If your conscience will allow you, take the time to develop a strategy to pass through that bottleneck as slick as possible. Now, there's a chance your conscience won't allow you to do it, and you're just at some Thanksgiving dinner not going to bow your head, start a conversation unintentionally, and by Christmas nobody's talking to you because you're an atheist. You know, these things happen. What I would say to you is, is that there's not a more needy person on the planet than Jerry DeWitt. There's not a greater people pleaser on the planet than Jerry DeWitt. And if I can stand, at least for 35 seconds, the entire world thinking that I never was a Christian, that I'm doing this for the money, that I'm doing this because I hate God and he won't let me sin in my favorite way, that's a throwback to you know 17-year-old habits, whatever. <laughs> uh, if I can do this, I say to you, be brave and do it. Do it strategically, but do it. And do your best to develop a strategy that gets it done and over with as soon as possible. Do it smartly, but do it soon. Fantastic advice. Fantastic advice. Jerry, the mic is all yours. Be shameless, my friend. Plug yourself if people want to know more about you or contact you. Where can they find you? Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Don't forget um, to plug your book. Too. I would be remiss if I didn't start with, um, if you'll go to jerrydewitt.net, don't be shocked. That will take you to our patron page. Uh, we'd love for you to check us out. We're just now. Uh, my son, Paul, is the second half, the other half of Team DeWitt. And we've been separated by six hours for about the last uh, 10 months, plus a few months before that, two different types of separations. Uh physically separated. We're now back in the same studio. We're just now starting to record again. I recorded a Wednesday night message. I would love for people to become a patron and listen to tonight or whenever they hear your broadcast. Um, so just jerrydewitt.net will take you there. Also, though, if you enjoyed the book Hope After Faith, if you're interested in what Hope After Faith is all about, every third Thursday, of the month now. We used to do it weekly, but now it's every third Thursday because of my consulting business and life coaching. Um, simply go to hopeafterfaithpodcast.com. 
You'll learn about the show. You'll see how to listen to it. And we would really, really appreciate you listening. My co-host, actually the producer and the Johnny Carson to my head, is none other than Bobby C. from No Religion Required. Oh, wow. And um, it is a true honor and pleasure to be working with that beautiful gentleman. Fantastic, Jerry. So, thank you so much for your time. But before I let you go, I got one more thing I got to let you. Uh, you got to do for me. Can I get you to say hi? I'm Jerry Dewitt, and I took a left at the valley. Hi, I'm Jerry Dewitt, and I took a left at the valley. And that was Jerry Dewitt, the best hair in atheism. Definitely a story of courage. And a good example for a lot of people, Jerry still works hard today to uh, help people come out of the closet and accept their apostasy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you so much to my co-host for being here with me on this interview. Um, you can always follow us at leftofthevalley.com. You can follow us at the Left of the Valley on Facebook, on Twitter, at LATV Podcast. You can send us an email at leftofthevalley at outlook.com. If you go to iTunes, give us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. And uh, we can keep on bringing some great uh, material for you guys. Coming up, next week we're going to be talking about the fentanyl crisis. It's really a big problem in the drug world today. Uh, so we'll have a, a bit of a paramedic on the staff to uh, talk about the, what's happening on the drug front. July 1st, we'll have a great interview with Eli Bosnick, our friend Eli Bosnick of God Awful Movies, and he'll be bringing with him Tom and Cecil of Cognitive Dissonance. That should be a fantastic interview to, uh, to, to listen to, and uh, we'll be talking about their new podcast called Citation Needed. And then in July, we'll also have Dan Barker. That should be interesting from the uh, FFRF, the Freedom from Foundation of well, Freedom from Religion Foundation. We'll be talking about uh, what the the fights are in the states, and maybe we should have one of those here in Canada. We'll also have a show we'll talk about feminism. Has feminism gone too far? That should be a nice controversial show, and I hope you'll join us for that. Thank you so much, guys, for listening. Until next time. Intelligent people can reach the conclusion that all non-believers are evil. What a fucked up statement. Do you realize what you're saying? But according to your book, this is how your God made me. Skeptical of anything that contradicts history, denies evolution, hates science, promotes mystery. I'd rather see the truth than to bask in my own ignorance. Rather be alone than surrounded by damn idiots. As long as there's a breath in my body, you can bet your last dollar. from culture, only true on a regional scale, science is universal, for you to say that Horus isn't real, but Jesus is, or Zeus, Thor, Mithra, Vishnu, you don't believe in them, I think the reason is apparent, you do what you're told, and believe in the God assigned by your parents, I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen, I call it how I see it, Call it faith and unsubstantiated claims That's something to be ashamed I'm an atheist
best to keep it on the hush Don't wanna affect business, he loves money too much We know that they love the kids, but how the fuck can we protect them While they planning to molest them, we teaching them to respect them Respect them, fuck that The system is broke down, working backwards And the only action of tactic I plan to practice now is to attack them The parties of God's hands are bloodstained Millions of murders by believers, and they're all in God's name and let me take a sec, don't mean to sound so hateful But I swear to God, unintended, I find it disgraceful That many atheists are told to be quiet You're not alone, speak your mind, time to let it be known I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer An infidel, a heathen, I call it how I see it I say it's ignorance and you just call it faith And unsubstantiated claims, that's something to be ashamed I'm an atheist Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.